Hey, welcome to the Culture Kings Podcast, the podcast that I don't host. But it is hosted by my good friends Edgar Montplazier and Jockey Snail. Very good guys. These guys are just going to talk about pop culture, sports, you know, a lot of shit. Shit people care about. I don't know how to put it. It's like... Podcast, but like a mosh pit. And if you ask them to stop, they'll start shit. I'm talking sports to politics to back and forth to plead the fifth. And now I'm coming back for more. Bling, bling, really big ring. Basky out with the crowny thing. With the comedians with the clowny thing. So you better bow down as the Coach Kings. It is Friday morning. Perhaps you are on a drive to or from work. Perhaps you are on a train. Perhaps you're on an airplane. I didn't say airplane last time, and I deeply apologize for that. I don't want to leave out any airplane travelers, but you're currently listening to the Culture Kings podcast. Today's guest is Syrian filmmaker and poet Shireen Alani Yunus. That's me. Uh, You may also know her from the Ethnically Ambiguous podcast, which she co-hosts with Anna Hosnier. Uh, They're all facts. Yes. Uh, please welcome our guest and the wonderful conversation we'll be having on The Culture Kings. Oh, that was very intelligent. Thank you. Yeah. So, Shireen, tell me something about you that I don't already know. Um, I'm a middle child. Really? Yeah. Born on April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. You were born on April yeah. Fool's. I didn't even question that when you first told yeah. me your birth date. Um, out of how many siblings? Two sisters. So Two sisters. From the middle of three. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. How close are you and the first sister? Uh, we're 18 months, so it's like a year and a half. Damn. You are my brother. Wow. I am 15 months older than my brother. Oh, nice. And yeah. and Were you guys uh, raised really close? Like very as close. Yeah. We were also raised as twins. Same. Are you more successful than your sister? No, she's a doctor. Okay. So yeah. then you are like me then. I'm the middle child. Yeah. I mean, middle child syndrome in my case is very mm-hmm. real. And what does that per- what does that mean exactly? It's I mean because I don't sympathize with middle children. I immediately have a strong reaction to them because of my brother. Oh, well, in my experience, and middle child syndrome is like a thing that like a lot of like psychi- psychiatrists talk about, and like there's like it's like a theory that's based on like sibling order or whatever. But the mm-hmm. middle child is usually, uh, well, the first child is usually the one that is the most obedient or like follows the rules, like the golden child. And then the middle child comes along and she's the most, he or she's the most rebellious one. They're the one that gets in the most trouble. They're like rebelling against not only like the example their older sibling is setting, but also like everything their parent, like they're, they're just the more uh, unconventional type. And then the younger sibling usually is like the baby. Yeah. And so. What I find fascinating about what you said is I'm that child in my mm-hmm. family, and often people mistaken Jonathan for my older brother because of exactly what yeah. you described. Like I'm rebellious. Yeah. I'm not doing what my parents want. Yeah. I'm not in the medical field at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. is your brother? Yes, he's a doctor. Holy shit! Mm-hmm. Are you me? No, in another I fucking mean, dimension. I mean, probably I am. I am a filmmaker. I wouldn't say I'm a poet anymore. In college, I wrote a lot of poetry. Once a poet, and I'm also a poet. Uh, not Syrian. I'm Haitian. I mean, okay, all those things are are correct, but there's a there's a kinship that I feel now. No, there is a kinship. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, when you were describing the dynamic, yeah. I was just like, no, that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's how I feel. Like, uh, especially every partner I've ever had has assumed I'm the middle child because of how I. Talk I would have assumed about my brother. Yeah, I would have assumed you're the middle child mm-hmm. if you told me like my sibling is a doctor and like I was the one that got in the most trouble or yeah. Um, 
I didn't follow the rules or whatever. I would yeah. assume that you were the middle child. Only because of my own experience, though. Well, my brother was uh, obsessed with the story of Jacob and Esau. And uh, he That's did convince, story. yes, in which Jacob and Esau are twins. Yeah. And Jacob was only a few seconds behind Esau. And the Bible describes him as holding Esau's ankle to pull Esau back in so he can get out first. That's wild. Uh, and uh, at one point, Jacob convinces Esau to trade birthright. And wow. my brother did that to me when we were younger. I forgot what it was I wanted. It was either a toy or something. Uh -huh. And he's like, I'll give it to you if you give me the birthright, if you make me the first child. And I did it. Whoa. Yeah. Maybe it was that moment that marked you as like. The as the middle yeah. child. Probably. Whoa. I, that's, that's I'm going to circle that so I can talk to my therapist. About <laughs> my therapist believes in birth child order. Do you believe in birth child order? Um, or child. I don't know how to say it Because of my properly. experience, I do think yeah. there's some weight to it. I think everyone is different. Like my I have friends that are the middle children that are the most successful, and, and the, the older children are like the fuck ups or whatever. Like there, there are there are exceptions yeah. to every theory or Absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. But based on my own experience, I do really resonate to middle child. <laughs> I also think that the years apart is also yeah. very important, right? Because mm -hmm. you can kind of start over. My yeah. my girlfriend acts like an only child, but she's the oldest of three. But mm. there's a significant amount of time between her yeah. sister and her. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a time. What a alive. time. So you are, are you a first generation Syrian American or were you born in Syria? I was born in Anaheim, California, wow. but when I was a month old, my family and I moved back to Syria. What was that experience like? I mean, I guess you don't really remember much, but how long were you guys in Syria? I was there for a couple of years. Then we were in Syria for like three months out of every year, basically, for until like 2010. Did your parents ever so. explain to you why that they continued to uh, yeah. send you guys back to Syria? Yeah, just they really valued our culture. And I learned Arabic first. It was my first language. And, oh, wow. Um, we are similar in that yeah. uh, in that uh, respect as well. Yeah. French was my first language. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel really lucky to be bilingual growing up. Um, mm -hmm. And my parents just really valued the culture. They didn't want us to forget it. And we have a lot of family. My mom has eight siblings. My father has seven. And so... Um, our family is just really big and meeting all of them and maintaining those connections is really important to my family because they were the only ones that they were the first ones that left to America oh, wow. out of their, out of their both, family. Yeah. So, yeah, my father was the last. Whoa. My, my uh, grandfather literally took everyone except for him. What? I think he still feels some type of way about it. That's, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds a little shady. Yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound cool. Like, my father came when he was, like, 20, and he was oh. just like, what the heck? Yeah. Because some of the other kids got to grow up here. Like, my Aunt Renee, you can yeah. hear it in how she speaks. Uh -huh. that she definitely went to high school here. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to have an accent growing up. It went away, though. Oh, for real? Yeah. There are uh, videotapes of me and my older sister, like, talking in the most ridiculous way. Yeah. I think that uh, I always say, because I don't remember much of my French, and it's because, well, one... I think moving me away from my Haitian family in New York to Texas, uh, where I didn't have that many other yeah. Haitian people to interact with, was a big thing about it. But I also think English is a poison language in terms of the more you learn it, the more you forget your original language. I, th I mean, I've never thought of it as a poison language, but I do think it's so widespread that you think that you don't need anything else mm. like you don't, you're not relying on anything else and so the more you use it the more you're like why would i need another language yeah <laughs> and so um but i'm lucky and i'm still fluent in arabic uh and like like semi okay like elementary and some other languages but uh um 
I really have to thank my mom and my dad for that, though, because even growing up here, my mom taught me and my sister English when we were younger. Like, on, she like would buy like hooks on phonics and mm-hmm. like teach us with those cards yeah. and stuff. And so even though we said words wrong because she was saying it in her accent, yes, it was still like looking back on it, it was just adorable. And I what were uh, what were some of the words for me? It was honest instead of honest? saying honest. Oh. My my parents would always say you have to be honest. That's a good one. My mom would say things like, like I don't know, like like really weird. Like like a tissue box was a tissue box. Oh yes. And like, I remember getting in the biggest argument with my friend in elementary school because the the brand of peanut butter Jif. Yes. My mom would call it Jeff. Yeah. And I was convinced it was Jeff. I yeah. was like, it is one hundred percent Jeff. Do not fight me on this. Like mm-hmm. all my friends were like, Shereen, it's Jif. It's yeah. obviously Jif. And like there were like a lot of words like that where I just like because my mom taught me, I was yeah. like, this is correct. And it was what was normal to yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, who's to say it's not? No, Jeff. exactly. But, um, but yeah, I, I love it. I think what's particularly frustrating about English is that there are so many of the rules that are uh, like standard in other languages are just broken in English yeah. for no reason. Yeah. Like the verb, the verb order and like yes. nouns and like even and in Arabic, you write from uh, right to left instead of oh, left wow. to right. So little things like that. Like, I think it was when I was younger, it was always interesting to me. And whenever I would go back to Syria, I would start thinking in Arabic again. Mm. And even here, I think in both languages only because there are some translations that I can't think of in English. Like, yeah. there are some words that I can just simply cannot translate into English and vice versa. And um, even some sounds, like there are three letters in the Arabic language that just don't exist in English. Wow, what are they? Um, it's the sounds a, kha, and ha. And I mean, it's, it's like a very throat sounds, like kind of like German and Russian. Arabic uses like the back of your throat for words, and English is more like Spanish, where the the it's like a kind of like a linguistic term. I forgot what it's called, but like um, the front of your mouth, where like your teeth are, that's where English comes from. And like German and Russian and Arabic, and like a couple of other languages are more like throat languages, and they're from here, like the back of your throat. Okay, yeah. that's very interesting. I, I never knew any of this. Yeah. I mean, um, I took a linguistics class, and I forgot all the terminology, so it's okay. it doesn't matter. I mean, look, I'll accept what you gave me, because <laughs> okay, cool. you are the expert in the room. I'm not. I'm not I can't expert. doubt what I'm you're anything. saying. I think you are an expert in jack of I'm, I'm a jack of, what's it called? Jack of all. Uh, jack of all trades, master of none. Yes. I'm an expert in nothing. Nice, nice, nothing. nice, nice. Uh, yeah. a, a television show from the late Aziz Ansari. It was a phrase before that show, Edgar. Sure. Where do you think he got the phrase from? I don't know. I thought he invented it. You thought he invented... I gave him a lot of credit for a lot of things. Oh, no. I also think he invented the feminist man. Wow, that's a big fucking lofty It was a credit. big, very lofty credit that I was soon uh, 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 shamed for. Proven wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quickly uh, proven wrong. <laughs> um, so tell me about... Uh, Syria in your youth. Uh, that's really interesting to me. I I don't want to say I'm obsessed with Syria and Iran, what? but I deeply want to go. You would love ethnically ambiguous. I, would, I deeply want to go to both of those countries because I'm a big history nerd. Uh, yeah. uh, I was forced to read the Bible a lot growing up, and the chapters about history mm-hmm. were very important to me. And civilization began in those uh, yeah. two countries, respectively. I, so I agree. I, I'm very obsessed with seeing a lot of those old structures and stuff like that. Um, it's really sad because the recent uh, destruction in Syria mm. has like wiped out so many beautiful ancient buildings. Like Aleppo is completely destroyed, and mm. it had some of the most amazing architecture imaginable that has been around for centuries. Um, 
But you're right. Damascus is the oldest city known to man. It's yeah. been there for the longest out of all the cities in the world. Um, I don't think a lot of people know this, but like the Arabs, like they invented math. They invented yeah. like a lot of diff- like most of the the words have Arabic, uh, um, what's it, like roots and stuff like Arabic or Latin roots and um, like even like the the Arabic numbers were the original numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they don't teach you that in your textbooks in school. They don't no. call them Arabic numbers, no, even they though don't. they're called Arabic numbers. Yeah, they're like because people will be like terrorist numbers. No, um, uh, but yeah, it's growing up. I always didn't really like people. Always even now they're like, "Where are you from?" And even I can't. I don't have an answer for them because in my head I've always like floated around between California and Syria, and mm. I don't know where my home is. Like, and that's okay with me. I've accepted yeah. that. Um, I feel like this like transient floating thing because when I was here, I was the weirdo with the accent and the family that was all in Syria. And when I was there, I was the American cousin that was also the weirdo. Oh, wow. So I was, there's never, I feel like a lot of immigrant kids feel that where you kind of just don't feel like you belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. But I still felt a really strong connection to Syria. And I still, if I did have to pick a place where I felt the most at home, it would be in like the house my mom grew up in or like Mm. the... My uncle has this, like, orange Volkswagen van that he would drive me and all my cousins around in. That does seem yeah. very um, nostalgic. Yeah. The words that you're describing. Like, I can kind of picture what yeah. you're saying a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Just the little smells and, like, the mm-hmm. sound of, like, pots and pans clinging together when I wake up and, like, everyone smokes and just, like, my my aunt and uncle, like, this, the smell of cigarettes combined with, like, the smell of, like, I don't know, laundry and I don't, yeah. it's just... There are so many memories I have of Syria, and uh, it breaks my heart because the Syria that I remember is not really there anymore. Mm. Um, but I really hope it becomes accessible in the near future because it really is a beautiful, beautiful country. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. and Absolutely. I mean, truly, the country of Syria is pretty new. It's not even a century old because it was like the borders of Syria aren't... Um, they were they're recent since like the French colonized it and yeah. stuff, and the British colonized it. So, um, that whole area is so vast, and it used to all be one massive, beautiful place, and then it got divided up. But the Middle East is such a vibrant, culturally rich place that hasn't been that, like, not like tarnished by technology, but like. Kind of like Dubai, for example, is like a Middle Eastern place that's like completely overboard with technology yeah, and stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. But it looks like a a, a Blade Runner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, despite Syria's politics and its government being complete garbage, um, the country is always something that I will latch on to and really love, and the people there that I love too. Absolutely. Yeah, and the food, the best food. I did want to ask you about the food. The, the food. food did seem, I mean, I'm a big eater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I eat too much. Uh, <laughs> even though I'm trying to change my diet currently, I had Brussels sprouts for lunch. Wow, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. It was very good. And I drink water. I'm drinking a Sprite now, but let's pretend that that's not happening. I mean, it's a clear liquid, you, you know? Thank it's, you. It's, it's better. Thank than, you. Yeah. Um, Still, soda's bad for you. I did want to ask you about the food, and yeah. I'll do that. Yeah, after the, food. the break. Oh, after the break. We have returned back to Culture Kings. We are still here with Shereen Lani Yunus. Hello. 
Am I saying that correct? Eunice. What does it matter? Eunice. I am so sorry. No, no it fine. does matter. I mean, but it really doesn't matter to no, me. No, Shireen, it does matter. But it doesn't matter to me, personally. Why not? Because I don't I don't have a strong attachment to my last name in particular. Mm. I have this fight with Anna upstairs as oh, well. Oh, really? Yeah. She doesn't care either? She goes, it's Anna. It's okay. And I'm like, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah. Um, I call her both. I call her Anna. I call her Anna. Mm-hmm. Depends on my mood. Um, but yeah, I think we just get used to people just... We'll respond to anything. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So. Absolutely. My last name, I've given up. I'm not going to try. You, you, you no, know. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But I've given up. I don't think I say it right anymore. Yeah. Even me, though. Like, I don't think I, like, because you have to, you have to English it, right? Mm. You have to, like, make it Americanized. And so, mm. like, my real, the, the way you pronounce my name in Arabic is different than the way, though, how I, sa- how I say it in English anyway. May so, I hear it in Arabic? Shireen Lani Yunus. Ah, okay. I see. Um, but so like, different but I'm not going to say those. Like, I'm not yeah. going like, to introduce myself like, hey, I'm Shireen. Like, like that, that just annoys me. So I'm mm. like, I don't care about the Americanization of it as long as it's easier for people to like remember who I am. But yeah, um, but yeah food. <laughs> um, <laughs> food, Syria's food, and Arabic food and Middle Eastern cuisine is fucking the best cuisine on the planet. I think that's why I'm so defensive when... I see that, like, when I see hummus described as Israeli hummus or, uh, like, Israeli yogurt or whatever, when really it's, like, those are Arabic foods that mm. Israel has only been around since the 40s, 1940s. Yeah. Um, there's no such thing as Israeli cuisine. Like, okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I hate to break it to you guys, but a country that's been around for less than a century doesn't have its own cuisine. Um, We've already had the uh, National Defamation League uh, yeah. attack us for previous things that Jaquisa said, so I, I'm comfortable with you making these large, okay, large cool. claims. Um, <laughs> it's uh, no, but it's true. When, every time you see something that's described as Israeli, it's usually just Middle Eastern cuisine or yeah. even Greek. Yeah. Um, and it's all very similar. Like the Mediterranean diet is very yeah. like Syrian and Lebanese and um, Arab and stuff like that. Why so, do you think that erasure exists? Because, do you think it's because Greek is like a lot more European, so people feel more comfortable yeah. being like they did this versus attributing it to brown 100%, 100%. people? One hundred percent. I really think like my my big fat Greek wedding is like yeah. a, a hoot, and I, me, and my family all related to that. Arabs relate to that that movie a lot, but it's acceptable because it's Greek by yeah. white people. You know what I yeah. mean? So, um, but yeah, uh, Syria in particular has this thing called Syrian breakfast that is very particular to that region. Um, basically, it's just small plates. Mm. Um, it's like family style, small plates. If you, if you just look up Syrian breakfast on Google, you'll see these images that are breathtaking. There's like a small plate of of like olives and a small plate of apricot jam called mushmush and because apricot's called mushmush and it's the cutest word ever and then there's Mm -hmm. like yogurt and pita bread and hummus and um all different kinds of chickpea dishes and and just like anything you can even desire there's this thing called uh um i guess it's called halva in in english but Mm -hmm. it's basically like tahini or sesame seeds rather because that's what tahini is uh sesame seeds ground up into almost like it's like arabic peanut butter paste but they don't have peanut butter. They have the sesame seed paste, and mm. you you eat and you, you your utensil is a pita bread. Like you don't use a fork and a knife unless there's like an egg, eggs present because you eat eggs with pita bread too. Actually, no, yeah. So you, there's no forks and knives. Every your utensil in Arabic cuisine is pita bread, and you just use your fingers and you. It's just beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I love that a lot. There's a delight. Yeah. That resonates from you when you're discussing this. <laughs> I, I mean, I could see it in in your smile and in your yeah. eyes. Um, how do oh, you? And tea. 
Oh, well, here we go. Tea. Mm-hmm. Tea and coffee is such a big part. And just, I remember being in Syria and Kake and Shai. Kake is like, I mean, it sounds like I'm saying poop, but uh, like uh, in in Syria and in the Middle East, uh, you, dr- you drink a lot of tea. Mm-hmm. And I love tea still to this day. But you dip like a cookie in there, like a hard cookie. It's not like, like, it's not like a, like the white equivalent is like those like Starbucks things, those like hard biscuit things. Are they called like biscotti yeah. or something like that? It's like it's like the Arabic version of a biscotti, right? Okay. Um, but you just dip them in your tea, and I have so many, and there's like these little giant loaves of bread, mm. and oh, just the smell of Syrian Arabic food makes it's just it's everything. Now, so how do you bring that? I mean, again, this joy is still very much so resonating from you. How do you bring that over here? Like, how do you keep that? alive here it's it's really hard hard actually my mm. mom is an amazing chef and cook so is me she and still my, here yeah my mom and dad live in san diego so me and my sisters have been lucky enough where like we are exposed to a lot of syrian cuisine and arabic mm. cuisine mm-hmm. um and my grandma also lives in the states now and she's also an amazing uh cook but me, that's me and my parents are very judgy when it comes to middle eastern restaurants like we'll judge it based on like the hummus, how it tastes, mm-hmm. and um, just my dad likes kebab a lot, so he'll judge on the, how the kebab is how, how it's mm-hmm. cooked. But um, if my family and I are happy with a place of hummus, like we know it's legit, mm-hmm. because hummus is very simple and it's very easy to mess up and mm-hmm. easy to realize when it's not authentic for if you're like if you if you've grown up with it, right? So then if you're fucking up at the hummus, you're probably fucking up at exactly. everything else. Exactly. So there are a select number of restaurants that like my parents are like approved of. Mm. Um, there's one in, if you're in LA. There's one in like East Hollywood called Marouche. Uh, it's kind of in this like Seven Eleven like like parking lot, and it lo- looks very nondescript, but it's it's amazing. Marouche. Marouche, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think it's like on Santa Monica Boulevard. It's in, in East Hollywood though. Um, and that's my area. Yeah, it's really good. I think it's owned by a Lebanese guy, um, and Lebanese and Syrian cuisine—they're like neighbors, and so their okay. cuisine are very similar. Um, but yeah, there's—I don't know. I—I really—it's hard to describe. Like even now, like Thanksgiving is around the corner, right? And like my favorite holiday ever. Yeah, but when I was growing up, all my friends would be like, "I'm going to grandma's house. I'm going here." And like maybe you can relate to this, but like we didn't go anywhere. Like my yeah. like my family wasn't around, you know. Yeah. So it was just like me and my immediate family, like my parents and my sister. It's just like it was lonely, and mm-hmm. um, we would have our like I didn't my mom and even me I didn't know what stuffing was until I was like a teenager. Like, yeah, we didn't know like we would like. It was it was a large meal, but it was yeah. a meal consisting of your uh, your ethnicity exactly uh, uh, cuisine. There was always hummus. There was always pita bread. Yeah. We, we eat turkey with the pita bread and the hummus. Like it's like this a different version of Thanksgiving. Yeah. And this Thanksgiving, I'm a little bit more excited because I have more family here. It's like it's uh, they're they're in the states for like reasons like also to escape Syria and also because they're here. But yeah. regardless, there's going to be more of them here Absolutely. this year, and um, so it's kind of nice. Yeah. So you are a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. Um, I have a couple of questions, and shoot. maybe this. <laughs> Did you say shit? At the shoot. Oh, okay. I thought like, you said like, shit. Like, oh man, I'm fucked. I got caught. <laughs> well, both. Uh, <laughs> I relate to both of those sentiments. <laughs> um. So, uh, recently, 
uh, it was announced that J.J. Abrams and oh Steven God. Spielberg you would are, bring this up. <laughs> are working on a film, I believe, about a, a Syrian, Syrian refugee. refugee. And they have grabbed a, a very credible, a very uh, 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 informed person to I'm be the scribe at on you. this. I'm glaring it's at a you. Lena Dunham. As someone who I, I, I find to be a very, not only capable, but talented filmmaker, how does that feel when you see that, but then the response is, well, where were we supposed to find someone? It's infuriating. Um, if you've, if any of you guys, I don't know, I've, you probably don't even know who I am, but I, when I found out about this, I literally went off on Twitter. Yes. Like, I had at least 10 tweets in a row just, like, explaining why this was a bad idea and bad for representation and... And, uh, like, the worst version of white feminism in a way. Mm. And um, it's, you, as happy that I, as happy as I am that a story is being told about a Syrian refugee, if it's told by someone that has no interest in that cause at all, like, it would be different if Lena Dunham, like, has spoken out about Syrian causes or cares about refugee causes or anything or if she was outspoken about anything other than just being a rich entitled white kid mm-hmm. um it would be different but she hasn't done any of that work she's yeah. not a true ally because she's lifting herself up on the backs of other people's struggles rather mm. than using her platform to be like you know what i'm not the most qualified person to tell this story and there's a lot of people that are more qualified than i am Absolutely. that i could give the this privilege to mm. she doesn't need a movie she's doing fine she's doing very fine you know what i mean like that's that's why I get mad about from I get mad at a lot of white celebrities in particular for not lifting up minorities when they have that opportunity. Like Scarlett Johansson didn't need the role of Ghost in the Shell no. or didn't need the role of what well, she didn't and she did turn down the role um, of playing that transgender uh, role that, that like the actual transgender woman. And so I'm glad she did that, but it was only after the backlash. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. When you have these like A-list stars or like like people that do not need the opportunity continue to take roles away from un- underrepresented uh, individuals in the society, like it's just disheartening. And mm. like, but she's not only to blame. Steven Spielberg and J.J. Abrams are also to blame. Uh, mostly these blame. fucking yeah, white men also ha- like had the audacity to think that the most qualified person was Lena fucking Dunham. Are you mm. kidding me? There are so many Arab filmmakers and Syrian filmmakers out there, Absolutely. and just because you the majority of people don't know about them, it's because they don't get these opportunities. Like, yeah. you don't know about them because they're not as as easily represented as, like, the an, another rich white kid. Like, Absolutely. the majority of filmmakers out there are people that have had opportunities, have people that have connections in the industry, mm-hmm. and um, that's why it's, it infuriates me. If you want to see why I hate this so much, just scroll on my Twitter and, like, okay. see all my rants about it. But... Um, it really does make me upset because she was called out on it on Twitter and someone was like, Hey, just curious if you're, um, if you've ever donated or, or like spoken out about the Syrian cause before you're like, um, benefiting from the pain of my people. And she responded, Lena Dunham, she said, Hey, just so you know, I feel very lucky to be in this position and I'll donate every cent I make to uh to the refugee crisis and I'll sh- and and I'll share my receipts quote unquote after. It was just like a really snarky and and a little bit callous. Callous mm. and it was not a genuine seeming remark at all. Um cuz a true ally again does not it's it's exploitation. It's yeah. not 
empathy. It's not supposed to be self-serving. Exactly. Um, There's a fine line between exploitation and empathy. And I think a lot of white creatives get stuck there because um, Lena Dunham got conned that uh, in her career before. Like, uh, there was a 2016 article that was about her work and about exploitation and empathy and about white feminism and being an ally because she came across that before in her series Girls where she was criticized for only uh, representing New York as rich, young, white girls that were very entitled when really New York is not like that. No. Um, and so to in response to that, she hired Donald Glover, but he played a very like affluent um, black man. Yeah, a, it was a black Republican. Exactly. It was not like a flattering portrayal. Not that no. it has to be, but I'm saying she and then like her Asian character in the show was a very like goody two shoes Asian girl. Like yes. her her characters were very. That's not representation. You're furthering stereotypes. You're basing off. You're you're making characters that. As if like you don't know that they they exist outside of those stereotypes. I don't know. No, so, I mean I she's understand. Problematic. She's Absolutely. problematic. I understand where you're coming from. I mean, yeah. I thoroughly enjoy the show Girls, but I did feel that same sort of anger in terms of like what I loved about Girls is that it felt like to me, and again, I can be very clueless. I don't know a lot of things, but I was just like, this is the first time I'm seeing a, a woman being able to pr- be portrayed so three dimensionally. Yeah. And being allowed to be ugly and nasty and and I don't mean ugly in terms of looks, but in terms of their yeah. character. Those are ugly characters in terms of they do very bad things, which I, I was happy was in the runs of a show like Mad Men, which, you know, jacks off to men being yeah. awful human beings. And but then I was just like, why won't you give your col- your characters of color the same sort exactly. of dimensionality? Exactly. That's yeah, that's exactly my point. And like as a filmmaker, it was disappointing to hear that like these big shots, as producers in this industry, mm-hmm. decided that this is the role they want to have in this story, like mm. handing it off to like another white woman. But as a Syrian filmmaker in particular, it was just really disheartening because. And then it got me really annoyed. Uh, as I was venting, someone commented on my Twitter. They were like, "Why are you so mad? Just make a better movie." <laughs> like, okay, first of all. I, one, I would love to, Absolutely. and I'm working on my own things constantly. But imagine having the the backing of like two of the biggest producers in this fucking industry, and, and, a yeah. giant budget, and also just like that platform. Like it's one thing for me. Like I've I'm very fluent in micro budget filmmaking. Like at Absolutely. this point, like I I know how to make it work with no money. But I would love to make it work with money one day. Sure. And it's not as easy as just making my own movie and proving them wrong because one, no one's gonna see it because I'm just myself. Yeah. And second of all, I would see it. I mean, thank you. But you know what? What, what I'm twice. trying to say, though, right? It's it's not as and of course the person that said that was like a white person, so mm-hmm. it made me annoyed that like the issue of representation goes beyond just not seeing yourself yeah. in front of the camera, like. And who knows who they're going to cast as this actual Syrian refugee woman? Like, they should bring in the Syrian refugee woman as least like as a consultant or a co-director or something. Of course. But um, I but mean, yeah, like growing up, I didn't see anyone that looked like me in front of the camera. I didn't like I I can't even name a Syrian a- actress or director or anything right now mm. that's like known in the industry. Um, but well, when you grow up and you don't see yourself, you don't think it's possible to achieve anything. Mm, you know? I mean, yeah, this is something that yeah. we've discussed on this podcast heavily. Yeah. I was going to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Syrian filmmaking, at least from 
and I only come from it from a very snooty. Uh, uh, I, I'm ups- I mean, right now we are entering my favorite time of the year. It starts off with Thanksgiving, but it also kicks off awards season. Oh. Uh, and Syrian filmmaking has been hot lately. Yeah. Uh, in terms of when we're talking awards, I think Iran and Syria have always been kind of yeah. duking it out for that uh, 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 best foreign film slot. Yeah. Uh, how has that kind of affected your work or and or inspired your work? It's inspiring for sure. Um, it's a little strange because I have a lot of friends that are like, "You're tr- it's you're trendy right now. You're good yeah. for business or whatever." <laughs> I'm just like, "Shut the fuck up!" First yeah, of all, also absolutely. like, I'm glad my entire country being genocided has finally given me an opportunity in the industry. Absolutely. Like, that's not whatever. Because these are dark films. Yeah, like, they're not like comedies. They're no. usually films about about killing and yeah. about families being torn apart absolutely. and and death and. Um, but yeah, it's, I look up to a lot of Iranian filmmakers, uh, Abbas Kurastami has made some of my favorite, favorite yes. films. Um, Close Up is one of my absolute favorite films of all time and it's made by an Iranian and, um, I really think we're all very similar. Like mm-hmm. Iranians are just like, I don't know, different looking Arabs. Like, I don't know, yeah. you know what I mean? Or like the same looking, I, I my name is Iranian. My name is not Arabic. It's Farsi mm. and it means sweet. And so a lot of. Persians that meet me assume I'm Persian because they know my name is Persian, um, and that's fine with me. I think we're all very similar, and we all come we're all cut for the same from the same cloth. And so I think the least that can happen from all this tragedy is more exposure from actual Syrian filmmakers and actual Iranian filmmakers and filmmakers that haven't had the opportunity for exposure before. And if it takes a war to make those voices heard, then so be it. You know, um, do you ever feel shoehorned? I mean, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at you now. I don't know what kind of movies you'd like to make. But my assumption is I don't think you want to make movies about that. No, uh, I don't even what watch kind them. of movies do you want to make? It's very hard for me to watch movies about Syria and mm. about the war. Um, I truly like avoid them mm-hmm. because like I <laughs> I just can't handle it. Absolutely. Um, and in most of my work, I've avoided that topic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really talk about being raised Muslim, even though I'm not, I don't relate to that religion anymore, but it was a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't talk about being Syrian because I wanted my creative vision to be separate from that, but now I'm getting the impression that people do want me to talk about it. Yeah. Like, I was just, I had a very brief meeting with um, a manager yesterday. I'm not represented by anybody, but I Name was like, mom. I'm just kidding. You don't have to. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, uh... But I'm interested in maybe, like, what someone could do for me as a manager. And so this woman was talking to me. She represents my friend. And she was saying that, um, like, me being Syrian is, like, a selling point. Like, I should write like write a feature about Syria. And, like, mm-hmm. as much as I understand the point of that and, and the, the gravity that that would entail... I don't want to rely on my background as a selling point. Like Absolutely I want to be my own voice. I want to. I and a lot of my s- films have been about like mental health or like they're dark comedies. And I used to do comedy, and I really love comedy as like a therapeutic uh, way to deal with um, anxiety and and mental health and stuff. And so my first instinct isn't to make a film about Syria, but. The thing that comes most naturally to me is like maybe make a documentary about my family mm. instead of being the voice of all Syrians everywhere. I can it's, at least comment on this little yeah. thing, you know. So the voice of the Eunices. Yeah, is that the, the voice way of, that you'd say it plurally. 
I get the Unai. My, my friends say Unai. My friends say Unai. But um, I think uh, Stephanie Robinson kind of talked about this. She was a, uh, I mean, uh, I want to say a very high level writer for Atlanta. I don't know what her yeah. credits are exactly. I, I really like her a lot. Uh, but great. she wrote a whole article about this of saying that, like, yeah, this whole diversity kick is very cool. But the next step is if Stephanie Robinson wants to go and say, hey, I want to write a movie about. Yeah. A little redheaded girl named Annie, and I just want her to still be that white redhead. I should be able to do that. Yeah. But I guess that uh, people have responded to that by being like, "How is that different than Lena Dunham writing about uh, a Syrian refuge, like a, a refugee?" And I, I guess my response to that is, well, power dynamics one and right. two. I think that Stephanie understands the story of Annie because we've grown up in that. Yeah, like we're constantly it's the norm. Exposed. Yes, it's the white race is the normal race, Absolutely. the the default race. Yeah, every the emojis are default white. Like yeah. I want to talk to you about that actually Please. later on. Emojis is that the topic make, make that you? Note. Yeah, okay. Emojis. I'll make a note. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I in my films I purposely either cast someone that is literally ethnically ambiguous, like you can't really tell what they are. Plug. Uh, exactly um or unless it's about race i try not to make that like a big deal in my films i try to cast people that are of color i try to cast people that are um diverse and things but i also you're not calling it out yeah i'm not i mean then again i've worked with like white women too so it's not like I don't think it's the same at all because, first of all, Lena Dunham's thing, it's an actual Syrian refugee woman. Absolutely. It's not like Stephanie Robinson is like, I want to make a story about the biography of, I don't know, like... Shirley Temple. Exactly. So that's different. I got you. I can I can name that off the top. Yeah. So, I don't know. It is it's it is different because the power dynamics do make it a lot different. And, mm-hmm. um, like, white people have been telling minority stories for their whole fucking life Absolutely. like for centuries like quentin tarantino a lot of his protagonists are, are african-american mm-hmm. um and his a lot of his movies are good i'm not saying they're bad but it's still like it's rare to have a minority being represented by a minority yeah um or by that minority in particular and so um yeah i don't know i, th- I think it's it is different and the to equal the playing field you should have stephanie robinson write and direct a story about a white girl because there's no equal playing field if you're going to whine and bitch about the opposite happening when you don't whine and bitch about the thing happening for this whole time you know what i mean mm, absolutely well i did want to ask you about your topic and i will do so after the break We are back to Culture Kings. I do want to make a note that everyone who's been listening and has wondered, what has happened to this podcast? When did it become Edgar's very sleepy voice and a a fascinating guest? Don't worry, this is temporary. Jaquise Neal is on a mission right now that I cannot tell you guys what it is, but know that it is something that is life-changing. It is. And I know what it is, but I also will not say because okay. I'm a good secret keeper. You are a good secret keeper, but you also have a very opinionated response. That's not true. To whatever <laughs> Jaquise may or may not be up to. Um, but you, I will say your voice is very soothing. Thank you so much. You have a great voice for podcasting and, ra- and radio. You know? I, I used to. That used to be something that people would tell me in diners. 
Because people just told told me I have a Muppet voice. I don't think I you don't have a Muppet voice. I don't know why I have a podcast. Wait, uh, diners. Wait, can we go back to that? Why are you in diners? So my much? family likes diners. Uh, I mean, uh, we would eat at a lot of diners. I ate out more than I realized growing up. I used to complain a lot that my mom wouldn't take me out. But I think after moving to Texas, my mom worked more. Right. So we ate out a lot. And white people will tell you whatever's on their mind. Just come right up to you and be like, give a great voice. Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. would happen to me a lot. And it's been happening to me about my voice dropped when I was 12 years old. Damn. And it was disgusting because <laughs> I was 12 years old and, yeah. like, Whoa, and I couldn't control it. <laughs> Like uh, a lot of people don't understand that I'm controlling it. Like I'm, yeah. I push my voice to sound higher than it actually is because uncontrolled, it's like it's uh, just... if a broken subwoofer. Whoa! So at twelve, I'd be like, "Mom, Dad," <laughs> and they'd be like, "Edgar, shut up, stop speaking." Uh, and wow, I've worked a lot to like really refine it. Yeah, um, people have commented about my voice so many times in my in my life, but it's usually like your voice is weird. Your voice is interesting, and like I've for that reason, I've really like my dream one mm. of my dreams is to like voice a cartoon or like be a voiceover for like some wild like little creature because mm. i think i can do it but um but yeah i i've been told multiple times i'm, I've, I'm up at voice no I, I think the only thing that i note about your voice is you have such clarity to it i can hear every single thing you're saying and pronouncing whoa that's nice yeah that's nice. i like that yeah i mean you did say that nice I, I right did after just say it that. i did just to, say that and uh, I, to like i really completely did, ruined my compliment i really i really didn't want you to ever catch on to that but also english is my second language okay. give me a pass whatever i was like you say things so clearly that's not, that's nice. that's nice. not nice um, um, yeah. So you did bring on a topic. Uh, this is something that Jaquise has been trying to install into the podcast. I call it laziness. He calls it producing. Uh, <laughs> where the guest brings on a topic that they wanted to talk about. Uh, and your topic is about emojis. Well, this happened. This was a very brief conversation I had the other day with a friend mm -hmm. over uh, text. And I use like the hang loose emoji a lot. Oh, yes. You know? I, I use it in person. Yeah, yeah, same. And um, it's a great just way to end a conversation, mm -hmm. you know? And also just be like, I'll be there never. And so uh, um, my friend was like, apparently there's a black hang loose emoji and I just can't find it. And I was like, all you have to do is hold down on the actual emoji and press it long enough and it'll show up. And, tr and truth be told, every emoji, as long as you hold it down long enough, all the skin tones show up. A, ma a majority of them, yeah. Yeah. And oh yeah, majority of the skin tones on all of them. But no, uh, I meant a majority of the emojis because there are some emojis I don't want people to try to change the oh, race right, to right, because right. you you just simply can't. Right, exactly. But um, it got me wondering how much I dislike some people using, like emojis em of color. That yeah, if they aren't of color. Mm -hmm. Do you have an issue with that? Um, we had this conversation before because uh, an uh, Anna emoji Anna emojis is that how you say it? They're the new ones here. I'll show you. Yeah, these freak me out. Um, someone asked me if they could do videos of Barack Obama speaking using his animoji. Okay. But they were a white person, and they just believed that they had a very good right um, impression impression of Barack Obama. And I didn't. I mean, I told them no. Well, I didn't say no. I just told them I just don't feel it's necessary. Like, why but, would a white guy use the black hang loose emoji? 
I don't know. You know, like, why do you think that's like a clever thing to do? I, I just think that it's an escapism that for them, right? Know, like, you know, and I think, like, hey, uh, I'm woke. Like, uh, not even that. It's uh, or I mean, maybe for them, I, that's a very weird way to attempt to be. But you don't know any white folks like that that will use. Oh like, no, I know white people yeah. that use that. I mean, I know white folks that use like the black bit emojis and yeah. stuff like that. So like, they the, use the, like a black woman, and I'll I don't be know. Like, it's you're just, the whitest person they exactly. know. Exactly. Like it just. Re- it weirds me out a little bit. Like, yeah, I think it's. I think that like, and this animoji thing is gonna get even weirder because I think it's just. Um, I don't know. I think it's just an escapism for them. Yeah. You know. They just latch on to anything because. I really think they think it's like a, a woke thing. Yeah, maybe they do, but I I think that's so misplaced. It is. I like, mean, I, I hate a, the word I woke like, though. I, no, I do too. I say that as a sarcastic. Like yeah. they think they're like quote unquote woke. Yeah. Like I have a um a white female friend that uses like the black uh, fist mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. as, like, but like that I've has a lot that. of implications. A you lot know of. What I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's a very strong. Poli- I mean, yeah, it has such implications that two people had their uh, gold medals voided because yeah. they used it. It's, I think one person had gold, the other had silver or bronze. But regardless, it's it's I don't know, it's problematic. I wonder about that moment in history though, because I feel like the guy who got gold is kind of like, "Hey, oh, dude, I lost more than you." Like, right? I lost yeah. a gold medal, my guy. But, you just lost a bronze medal. <laughs> I had a gold medal. <laughs> Even at the playing field. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's the only thing I wanted to bring up. But, well, uh, I mean. Also, do you think it's funny that you have to hold quick, it down to get a, there? Yeah, that that is weird that you have to hold it down. But I think hold it down and impress it long. I enough. think that was Apple's like one ditch attempt to like you know dissuade people from using it if they didn't have to. Right. But nothing's gonna stop away. I I think about this because on video games, a lot. Especially recently, like I've been playing Red Dead Redemption a lot. Okay. And uh, Arthur Morgan is white, and there's just nothing you can do about it. But I do think about it a lot, and I do want to be like, I wish I could change his skin tone to fit me more. But then I don't because. But imagine, but so many video game protagonists are white and Caucasian. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I do, I do wish I had the options at times, but then there are times the game doesn't shy away from race and it doesn't shy away from race in a way that i think is boring and just like good job like there's a part where you like uh there's a lot of side missions and there's a side mission where you meet this guy who's crying on the road Mm -hmm. because he misses his property and you're like hey i'll go get it for you and you go get the guy's property and while you're getting it you realize that this guy's a slaver and the stuff that he misses is like his old uh, slave Uh. stuff and so you go back and instead of giving it to him, you yell at him and you go, you're fucked up. <laughs> and then I was just like, this is whack. Yeah. <laughs> this is so whack that they, like, do you want from me, Rockstar? Fucking like, hey, good job, yeah. guys. Like, no, fuck that. Like, Arthur Caillou Morgan was back. probably a slaver yeah. too. Like, yeah. I'm not going to like sit here and be like, so that's the, that, yeah. I don't know. So I think like these people who are using these emojis, like, sure, whatever, but they're going to run into situations where... Yeah. It's just going to become so apparent what they're doing. Right. And I think no, that I that's think what happened that. with Red Dead. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, we're going to put in all this stuff, but then a black person is just going to play it and be like, this is the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever... Because you, don't, you don't can't even kill him. That. They don't think about minorities reacting to their stories. Yes. The same way that like the majority of movies and video games and TV shows are all... The majority of them, especially until recently maybe, have been white people. Of course. And they've never considered it. And it wasn't until I started hanging out, or I I should be really specific, dating white people that I realized, because I used to be like, they just don't care. 
but it's worse. It's they don't even think about yeah. it. Yeah. Like the things that some of them would say and stuff, I'd be like, it's not that you don't care. It's much worse. You're just not even thinking. Like it exactly. doesn't even cross your mind. I completely agree with that. It's really not apathy. It's complete obliviousness to, yeah. to, the, to how it can be problematic. Which is far more dangerous <laughs> yeah. in my opinion. Me too. Because I agree. if it was a concrete choice, it could be something that we could like, like you know. sway or something. Yeah, yeah, but if it's something that you're just not realizing, like you know what I mean? It's, yeah. uh, it's almost like the emperor's new clothes yeah. where by the time they realize it they're too late they're naked in the streets and then they're mad at me for some reason that's something that bothered me about that story is that he he uh, gets rid of all his um like materialism his cabinet his, his cabinets like his cabinet i guess what would you call that for a king like his advisors right, 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 right and he right. punishes them and he throws them in jail because he got juped by those two thieves <laughs> but i'm just like nigga you was the one who was taking it on like you weren't listening to anybody and you're gonna blame all these people but that's what happens with these white people yeah. who are like they're just like well i didn't know it was racist it's like why are you mad at me that's what happens with privilege yes. privilege and entitlement and like lena dunham defending her choice to stay you know what i mean and she's getting upset at the people exactly rebel wilson blocking all those black critics she blocked them you didn't hear about this? I heard that she like like responded. I didn't know she fucking she blocked, blocked them. She blocked a lot of them because they were dummy. like being like, "What are you doing?" And then she blocked a lot of them. Fucking white women. I didn't Not say all it. of you. Not all of you. Okay, I I'm didn't t- say it. don't come at me with this. <laughs> um, it's okay. Uh, they've uh, they've stopped. They've stopped coming because I think they've stopped listening. No, but because uh, they're white mad women, at me. White women, you, y'all lost us, Texas. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That do better. Yeah. Do better. One hundred percent. I want to reverse the tables a little bit here, and Please. I want to ask you a question. Ask me one question before we head out. Um, why did you stop writing poetry? Uh, most of my poetry was based on my suicide attempts. Word. Uh, and uh, how depressed and sad I was, and then I do remember a therapist was just like, "Try writing a happy poem," and it was the worst thing I've ever <laughs> written. Uh, so I think that I abandoned it. I had a poetry blog called dead in three years and it had a countdown to when i was like i'm going to take my life okay um so i think like for me poetry is uh, attached to a very sad sad time in my life it is interesting though because i i have felt like i've written my most good my most well-written poems when i have been the most depressed absolutely and it made me think like maybe i shouldn't be happy because i maybe i'm not creative if i'm not unhappy yes and it's that whole suffering artist motif and and struggle and even now i have this uh like like it's it's an untrue belief that i have to be miserable to make anything creative of quality or something it it is um and but i do but i do understand you feeling that way about poetry because i think for me poetry was like a catharsis whenever i was feeling the most shitty and i wrote a lot about death and suicide as well um, and depression and stuff like that, and um, and I still write about those things, but it's I use it more as like a I don't know, like a like a therapy. Yes, you know? yes. I I used to believe that m- uh, myth as well until someone showed me a, a story about Van Gogh mm-hmm. that essentially called this all bullshit because I think one of his most famous pieces of work is Starry Night. Am I correct about yeah, correct. that? And he did that while in recovery. Uh, so it's just like that. this is proof that it's all fake. Yeah. That like he it wasn't after he cut his ear. It wasn't after like you know yeah. his attempted suicide attempts. It was while he was working on becoming yeah. a better person. 
And also, no one knew about him when he was alive. Exactly. Like, he was miserable, and and when he wasn't miserable, he, he was still unknown. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm holding on to that fact, that if I die, people will finally listen. <laughs> so thank you for that advice. No, that's not what I mean. <laughs> um, but yeah. Shireen, where can people find your um, work? What is a project that people can be excited for? What are your social media tags? Well... Speaking of poetry, I guess since we're on the poetry train, um, I do have a book of poetry on Amazon. It's called Dime Piece, like a, the coin, like a dime and like mm-hmm. a piece of a puzzle. Because yes. uh, it spans 10 years from when I was 16 to 26. So it's kind do of like a diary. you know what that means in Ebonics? Yeah, it's like a like a hot chick. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to. I, I like the double meaning. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm very into wordplay. Sure. Um, and yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just a play on words, Edgar. <laughs> Let me have this one thing. You're like, I um, really like wordplay, and then you winked at me. I just, oh, I did not. I don't even know how to wink. Okay, um, but yeah, it's on Amazon. You can look it up. It's sixteen dollars and sixty six cents because hail Satan. And then um, I'm working on my next one, and I think it's a lot better, only because I feel more like seasoned. I guess like mm-hmm. a good piece of meat, and um. Uh, I'm working on some films. You can watch my other films. Um, my website's shereenlani.com. And follow me on all my socials. It's Shereen Y, S-H-E-R-E-E-N-W-H-Y on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I'm Shirohiro, S-H-E-E-R-O-H-E-R-O. Also, listen to Ethnically Ambiguous. One of our amazing listeners tweeted that Ethnically Ambiguous and uh, Stuff You Should Know were the best How Stuff Works podcast. And one of y'all had to fucking find the tweet and comment culture kings is greater than ethnically ambiguous and that's well that's what led to you being on this episode thank you for that twitter person but also let our fans love us okay let (laughs) us have let us have this how did you even find that tweet we weren't involved in that tweet whatsoever no one had even talked about us and someone went out of their way to be like Like, culture kings is better than exactly like where did you even come from like go back to your hole of but um, but yeah, follow ethnically ambiguous. Something I'm very proud of. Me and Anna host it, and um, if you guys like this, I think you'd like ethnically ambiguous because we have a lot of people of color as guests, and also mm. talking about what it, like what it's like to be children of immigrants and minorities in our industries. Yada yada yada. Also, Middle Eastern news that I think is very important. So um, yeah, we're available on the same network this is on, and wherever you find podcasts, ethnically ambiguous. Well, Shereen, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm I glad like you think so. I've learned a lot. I was uh, nervous. Why were you nervous? I'm always nervous. Well, you know, cold. I feel like you have uh, very little to be nervous about. Uh, I think a better jacket might help out with the temperature thing. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, but thank you so much for being on. Everyone listening, that was Shereen Lonnie Eunice. Um, Perfect. Speaking about her time in Syria as a child her love of Syrian breakfast food and Syrian film and how it has influenced her work. Thank you for listening to Culture Kings. You can follow us at Culture Kings Pod. You can follow Jaquise Neal at Jaquise Neal on all social media. I am at Edgar Mobazir on Twitter and at Awfulgram on Instagram. On November 29th, we will be in Chicago for the Chicago Podcast Festival. Tickets are still on sale at ChicagoPodcastFestival.com. That is all for me, and as always, stay healthy.